My name is Christina Crook, and I am the author of The Joy of Missing Out. I want to welcome you to the JomoCast, a podcast for individuals who want to learn how to thrive in a digital age. Jomo is the joy of missing out on the right things, things like toxic hustle, comparison, and digital drain to make space for life-giving commitments to people and work that bring us peace, meaning, and joy. The JomoCast is 100% listener-supported. Each episode takes about 40 hours to create and involves the work of our composer and producer, Tom. Hello. Social media lead, Rebecca. Hello. And me. We believe there are new and even more urgent questions to be asked now about digital well-being, given that most of us will need to depend almost exclusively on digital channels for social support for the foreseeable future. On the podcast, we answer questions like, how can I stop comparing online and trust that I am enough? How do I shift my attention from passively consuming online to creatively connecting with neighbors and loved ones? How do I build the self-discipline to see things through? How do I stay on track doing the things I say I want to do without getting hijacked online? How do I make space for rest and play? How do I succeed in life without burning out? This podcast is made possible by you, our listeners all over the world, from Brazil to Australia, the USA to Singapore. Please support the JomoCast for just $3 a month. Visit patreon.com forward slash JomoCast and sign up today. You will get Jomo swag and a handwritten note of thanks from me in the mail, a shout out on the podcast and a place on the Jomo wall of thanks for all of time. You'll also have the opportunity to ask future guests your questions. To sign up, go to patreon.com forward slash JomoCast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash JomoCast. And thank you for supporting the content that supports you. So here on the JomoCast, we are seeking answers to how we live well in a digital age. Due to COVID-19, parents around the world have become their children's primary educators overnight and are struggling with their kids and their own well-being. I know this because I'm one of them. I thought there was no one better to discuss this than with Kate Tillichuk, Canada's Research Chair in Young Lives in Global Local Contexts and the Director of the Young Lives Research Lab at York University. Kate has been teaching and studying the sociology of children and youth for two decades. She is currently a professor of education and Tier 1 Canada Research Chair in Young Lives in Global and Local Contexts. She is the founder and scientific director of Young Lives Research Laboratory in Canada. Welcome, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. So you are the Canada Research Chair in Young Lives Education and Global Good. Can you tell us in your own words what that means? Sure. So I'm very honored to have been awarded a Tier 1 Canada Research Chair. And that means I have the um, both the responsibility and the ability to build um, a program of research, which continues the work that I've been doing for many decades. And that is 
how are young people faring in the modern world and what is it that education could do or should do in order to mediate some of the greatest challenges that that young people are having. So I'm lucky in that I get to spend a lot of time talking to young people, their parents and educators, and really trying to track down what they're struggling with at the moment and how we can best support them in um, in uh, their lives and, and making things work better for them. Let's talk about kids and youth and tech right now. What opportunities and concerns do you see in the rapid shift to online education? Sure, it's such an important question. And, you know, for me, these days have been all about reflecting on this moment um, in which it feels like we're living in some naturalistic experiment for humanity. So what are the reaches and what are the limits of these tools, these digital tools that we've all um, gone so far into living in? And uh, young people, for sure, have been deep into sort of an ubiquitous world of of being online. And my research talks about that and what their concerns are for themselves and their own well-being online. And when you add to what was already known and, and the conversations I was already having with young people to now the fact that their daily education is also happening there. It is an incredible moment for us to figure out, um, as I say, the reaches and limits of, of what this technology can actually bring. Yeah, you, um, I'm going to quote you here. You say that schools must continue to become a place of full human potential for all young people. And it seems like given the fact that we aren't able to be in an embodied state with one another. What are some ways you think that we can sort of unlock that full human potential, given that we're all stuck in our homes right now? Yeah, I think your podcast and its um, invitation to all of us to find some joy in uh, missing out is a really good space for that. And I would highly recommend that for young people and for their parents you know, it's a moment where we can try to reclaim some of the unmediated lives and relationships um, around us that make us really fully human. Now, of course, the the catch at the moment is that everything has gone online, including those lives and relationships. So it's even more important, I think, even though more challenging, to try to close our screens and put our devices aside to use the time to reflect about what it is that we want from our society, from our education, from each other. What are we able to bring to our relationships? And how can we find joy in um, other kinds of ways that we wouldn't otherwise get to explore now that we're all locked down at home? Um, you know, for me, for example, I'm trying to circle back to poetry I've loved in the past and make a space for that each day in my own life and in my online teaching, which it's all, all of my teaching has gone online. It's been fantastic to connect with my students this way, although we all agree we miss each other and our face-to-face -face conversations but there's so much anxiety that being able to speak to each other is really important and really good. I've tried to do some small things, uh, for example, for my graduate students when they 
make presentations in class, I tend to write postcards with my own hand rather than always providing feedback and assessment in a, a typed or an online situation. So I decided to continue to do that, even though we weren't online. And I reached out to my students and said, would, would that be okay with you if we still continue to write, if I wrote to you? And they were quite thrilled at the thought of getting a piece of mail, a postcard in the mail with some um, comments on their work on it. So, you know, there are ways to try to break through and break down and reach out across all of our screens and our tech to um, to create these uh, human relationships that are really meaningful to us. The whole concept of uh, necessity is the mother of invention. It's amazing to see the shifts that are happening, a, a move back to, you know, older practices like letter writing. I'm sure Canada Post is having a heyday with that, um, which is such an, a wonderful essential service that's still happening. But I, I completely connect to um, that love um, and connection w- with the analog. There's something about um, someone's individual handwriting, we almost never see, you know, one another's handwriting anymore. And it's such a personal thing. You see, you, you, you see so much of someone's personality through that. So what a, what a beautiful gift you're giving your students. That's so creative. Yeah. And it was really meaningful to me too. And I would do that even when we are in a face-to-face seminar classroom. I've, uh, in the last number of years, tried to reinstate that. And I've been amazed at some what some small gesture, some small postcard can mean and do. I've had no end of, um, you know, thanks for something so simple. And that that says a lot to me about some of the limits that we're reaching in technology when something so easy and simple looks like a, a major breakthrough to people. So for many years, I've been studying the online lives of kids. And I guess it's through them that I've learned the concerns around well-being and their own voices um, that say to me, you know, we have a love-hate relationship. We are so far in, and yes, we use it to communicate, and yes, we use it to make friends and new friends and find out uh, what's going on around the world. We can pull 8 million young people onto the street in the case of Fridays for Future. These are very important tools, but you know, the downside is the forever mediated experience of of human beings, the always being on, the anxiety, the FOMO, which, um, you know, the fears of missing out and the anxieties of that. And so young people themselves live in and talk about this deep, deep paradox of the modern technological world that they inhabit. And I was um, able to have, I think, purposeful conversations with them about, you know, what is the worldview of technology and then the tools that happen within the worldview, because most research stays with the tools and the designs. And it's a very important piece to say, what do the actual um, Facebook or Instagram or TikTok, you know, what do they mean and what is allowed and disallowed in those spaces? Because those are the embodiments of technology that young people come to find on their phone or in their in their bedroom in front of their screen. But it's driven by a much larger ambition um, 
not least of which is monetary um, and commodifying for young people. So I try to have a conversation with them about all these kinds of layers and levels about technology and what works and what doesn't work. And amazingly, uh, in the last five years, so many young people have said to me, you know, we've not had a space to talk about that. And that made me quite concerned. Um, And I think now is the time. Uh, particularly with education going online and their very important lessons and work that has to be continued in terms of their their full education online, but perhaps making some projects for young people where they can explore a little more deeply and critique a little more fully um, the way in which big tech works and who's behind the creation of the tools. And as some young people say to me, they're very constraining. You know, we can only do what someone in Silicon Valley thought we ought to do with these tools, um, even though we can hack and break it down. But just just empowering young people to, as part of their education, think about the balance that's required and think about what they will say no to in technology. This seems like a right moment for that to me. Absolutely. Very unsurprising that I would agree wholeheartedly um, with that. I think, you know, there are new and vital questions we need to be asking about digital well-being right now, even conversations that I think people weren't prepared to have, you know, pre-pandemic because it was sort of this optional thing, right, to choose to be online, whereas now um, we no longer have that kind of choice. I'm curious to hear from your work. Um, you talk about, I'm going to just kind of dig a little bit into some of the things that you've spoken about in the past, um, where you point out that there are global indicators revealing that rapid shifts in globalization and technology have pushed more kids to the margins. And you talk about some of those things being Um, seeing distancing of social relationships and rising mental health challenges for our kids, spiking levels of anxiety and depression, dips in human empathy. We can go on, you know, youth suicides, disconnection and distraction from living on too many screens. What are some strategies that you have either um, gleaned from, you know, the young people that you've been speaking with, but also that you've encouraged young people to employ that have helped them sort of strike this balance with the online and the offline? Yeah, that's the really great question. And, you know, that is part of my concern about this moment, because as we know, going into the pandemic, young people were already the precariat. You know, um, they've been thought about in that kind of way. They're at the front line of pretty high unemployment rates, and it remains to be seen if they'll stay there. Student debt you know, the kind of foot soldiers of modernity who are um, more precarious than any generation before them. And so what does something like this pandemic mean? And then when you salt and pepper technology and its place into it, it's a really strange and interesting time for us to unpack. But in terms of, you know, strategies and what young people are telling me that they attempt to do is this notion of balance, and we hear about it um, in many different ways. How do they maintain a balance? You know, if you go back to the notions of well-being and how well-being is measured, there are a number of different domains, such as, you know, am I living in a healthy place? Is the Do I have affordable conditions? Is my physical health well? Is my mental health well and such? And young people are suggesting to me that they want to reassess 
how technology is helping with each one of those domains. Is it helping or hindering my physical health? Is it helping or hindering my mental health, my ability to be employed, um, my space and environment, etc., which is a really powerful thing to do. So go back to the way that well-being is construed and think about how exactly does technology help or hinder these kinds of things in your life, you know, the ability to connect to others. What young people say on that domain and that front is it's always mediated. So yes, there's connection, but what are we losing in terms of that always on mediated kind of human relationship? And they, they're concerned about that. And once again, the pandemic will help us see that when we can only have mediated relationships with our families and friends, which is what's happening to most of us at this moment, we're really feeling isolated. And there's one um, psychiatrist and psychologist after another saying, be really careful that you're still finding your daily meaning and purpose um, in life in that, in that case. So once again, a naturalistic experiment and moment in time to say, you can't actually relate to people without mediation now. And young people were already concerned that it was already too mediated, and now it's only mediated. So I'm very excited to go back and speak to a number of young people in the moment at this time to find out how it is they navigated this pandemic and what it meant for their already kind of strained relationship with technology, this paradox, this conundrum that um, technology provides to them. At the end of the day, well-being is about hope, meaning, belonging, and purpose. And um, to what extent is technology or any of the tools of technology providing that to you? And if it's not, you know, have the courage and creativity to do something else or to put it down. But that's easier said than done for lots of young people. And they admit that and they talk to me about it. That they, they, you know, they say incredible things like, without it, I would disappear. You know, without it, I'd be nothing. Um, we don't know how to get out of this. It's a rabbit hole. It's, um, we're being controlled by it. We can't control it. So those are some of the statements that were made in my, my latest book um, from young people that I found really concerning. And I thought as a society, particularly as educators and youth serving, supporting parents and others, we need to be having this conversation all the time about how we can do better to, to support young people in this complicated time and journey that they're having with technology. And there's a new NGO out there called Tech for Good Canada. And I've been part of some conversations. And the other night we did an e citizen salon or a citizen e-salon, I guess is what it is, about this very topic. And parents can then um, call in and speak to folks and we can get together and talk about how we'll support kids. So I, uh, you're absolutely right. It's out there now with a vengeance. I mean, it was already becoming quite a concern uh, for educators and parents and for young people themselves. And now with the pandemic, we have a moment to really, you know, reset and, and see what makes the most sense for us as a society. 
as I'm listening to you talk and you're you talking about the four elements of um, well-being, being hope and meaning, belonging and purpose, I, I got to thinking about the role that community has to play in both creating the problem, but also um, providing the solution in terms of allowing young people to strike a balance online. What do you think the role the community has to play in helping one another find more of a balance online and off? Oh, I think it's phenomenally important. And I mean, young people are mostly about creating community and they'll create it. It's part of their developmental task um, to, you know, be social, to be with others, to find their identity through their social relationships. And they find multiple communities, both on and offline. And um, there are online communities that young people have forged, created and found that are extremely helpful. You know, I'm watching um, Climate Strike. I'm watching Greta Thunberg's work, and she's pulling together some really incredible speakers. Every Friday, they've continued their Climate Strike online, but in its place, they have um, climate scientists and people like Naomi Klein coming on and giving lectures and engaging young people in what this moment means and how they're going to connect the dots with climate crisis. So the community building is vast. Um, One hopes that, you know, uh, we're building communities that help us, that are are good for our well-being, but we all know that there are also communities online that are really quite negative and communities now that are trying to break into some of these other spaces to create havoc in ways that young people are quite clear and talk to me about is, quote unquote, nasty humanity and how nasty humanity is out there on the internet. All to say, yes, the community and everyone who surrounds young people each day uh, needs to come together with young people to hear from young people what their struggles are now and then how best we can support them. Whether that's, you know, taking on big tech or taking on some regulatory Uh, legal issues so that our young people can use internet more safely and securely. You know, I mean, it it happens at all levels um, and could happen at all levels. You've spoken almost exclusively around online communities, which makes sense because that's, you know, the space that we're in and limited to right now. I'm also curious about physical communities. So in my own experience, I've got three children, their ages 10, 8, and 6. So fairly young. And also in my own relationships, I find that commitments to community engagement, such as our kids scout troop or my monthly craft night uh, with the ladies in my neighborhood, those kinds of spaces that we create, um, you know, we don't really say they're tech free, but the, the focus of those community gatherings is on making, you know, learning new skills, et cetera. What do you think the opportunity for those types of community gatherings have in terms of allowing youth to flourish in a digital age? I think they're, they're phenomenal opportunities. They're crucial. Um, they're critical spaces, whether they're youth-driven or intergenerational spaces, which don't happen often enough, where young people are coming together with us older folks to have conversations. Um, they are fundamental You know, I've been a volunteer with Big Sisters, Big Brothers, Big Sisters organization as an example for a number of years. And 
you know, they have it right. You must see each other face to face and it, it happens in real time and it's not supposed to be around uh, tech mediated kinds of things. They're simple things. They're baking, they're walking, they're going for a swim, they're, you know, doing those sorts of things. And it's an old organization, but the intuition, especially today, just works so very well both for the, the big and the little, um, uh, both the, the child and the um, adult person involved in the relationship. And I'll say, you know, in four to five, six hours a week, the force of that relationship is really incredible. Um, so yes, obviously, I would say we need more of that face-to-face, human relational, creative community building. And uh, young people are doing those things as well. But now, again, we you know, we have a moment where this has stopped face to face and people are really struggling to try to still maintain those kinds of connections online. And we're all, we're feeling, you know, flat about that. It's left wanting because it simply just doesn't have the same resonance as being together in a room creating all around the same table or the same space. It's a challenging time even the bits around transitions, I think what I have been struggling with the most is just that every day blurs into the next. Do you know what I mean by that? Absolutely. And I guess that would be one of the suggestions for this well-being is to try to set a bit of a schedule and a bit of a rhythm. And in that respect, the um, coming online of the, uh, at least the Ontario educational system coming back on in the way that it has might help to set some parameters and some scheduling and such and some normalcy, uh, whatever that actually means, um, is really important for people. I mean, it's fine to get completely lost and completely miss out and enjoy that and the joy of it. But sooner or later, I think particularly for young people, some kind of um, rhythm is, is good for them. It's good for us. Could you speak a little bit more to that in terms of the importance for youth having rhythms, um, physical rhythms, and also just um, like rhythms with their schedule? Yeah, it's actually one of the, was one of the problems with uh, technology early on that um, neuropsychiatrists, neuropsychologists, neurologists were concerned about was the, the dissipation of sleep for young people. So it was interrupting their rhythm. It was interrupting their day-night. It was interrupting their attention. And so the ability to sit and create and think deeply and to synthesize and analyze and and put thoughts and ideas and quote-unquote information together into some sort of set of higher knowledge was being broken down. And that's still a concern for, for people today about what these actual tools do to young people. It shifts our time often in terrible ways because there is no beginning and end and there are gamers who can just sit there for days and days on end with zero rhythm. So you're missing out on, you know, proper meal time, proper walks, uh, a proper rhythm of um, entertainment versus creation. You know, these kinds of things that are important for us to have during the day. So technology can really reach out and disrupt those rhythms at both the individual neurological level and up to the sort of cultural level as well for young people. I've heard a lot in my research about young people and, and 
chuckling at themselves about it, but they say they brush their teeth with their phone. They have to shower with their phone. They use their washing with their phone. So if they kind of map out a day for us, which my team asked them to do, what does your everyday look like? And it's just always on. And so they're going through some daily rhythms and rituals, but it's always mediated through this gadget, through this technology. And it was concerning to them in ways that they weren't particularly articulating fully, but they knew that it was weird. And yet they're not challenged generally to break that habit or to hold out um, spaces, consistent spaces offline. I'm curious to hear about your own practices. I know they're, you know, you're obviously you know, in a different generation than the, the the students and youth that you're speaking with. But what are some strategies or rhythms in terms of taking breaks from the phone, for example, that you advocate for? Yeah, that's a great question. And again, I've learned from young people because they chal- they're challenged with this. They do want to, quote unquote, unplug or do digital cleanses. And it's more frequent now than it was even two years ago to do that. Um, and to talk about it and the meaning of it. So, you know, a small thing, and it's it's funny because now I can only talk sort of pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, but I'll talk post-pandemic, even simpler things for me, like don't set an alarm in the morning, wake up by the sun. I'm thrilled that I'm a person who's able to do that. I'm a relatively early riser. So I wait until the light is right. And then I can just sit there and or lie there and just listen to birds and listen to the day wake up around me, which I would almost never do before. So that's a really interesting space to um, reflect, like what would I want this day to look like? Now, to be sure, um, at the moment, being a professor at the end of term where everything has moved online and all of my research has had to go online and I'm retooling projects and and it's it's not that easy but just that little tiny space and then I can ask myself what would make the most sense to set a rhythm today how many hours of straight work because everything I do is online at the moment like most people versus shutting it down and then taking a walk and at what time will you walk and those sorts of things and often at least in my world in the hustle bustle of you know Toronto and and whipping around on the streets and in public transport we don't really get that space to make those conscious decisions right yeah it does seem like kind of a profound opportunity to begin those types of practices. I've actually read that somewhere else very early on when we started social distancing, some doctor um, advocating for just what you said, not setting an alarm, letting your body naturally wake up when it's meant to wake up because people aren't rushing to offices. Of course, people need to be on certain calls at certain times, but generally most of us now can wake up when our body is ready to wake up, which is setting a new kind of rhythm for us. I'm looking out the window right now watching a dad and two kids go biking. I see couples, you know, walking down the street together. Uh, Us as a family, you know, we're getting out definitely for a walk or a bike ride every day because it feels like such an absolute necessity right now. And so I think the opportunity for establishing new rhythms right now that we can carry into, like you said, post-pandemic, I think is, is quite exciting. 
It is exciting. And, and another small thing for me, similarly, I look out the window and I'm seeing people I've never seen before. And I've lived here in this neighborhood for 10 years. And that's really exciting. You know, it opens up an opportunity when this is finished to think, oh, I, you know, who are you? Uh, we're, we're not usually out on the street together and we're not able to speak or converse at the moment because of social distancing. But, you know, we're seeing each other in a new way. And I'm excited to see what that means when we um, can actually speak and reach out um, to, to these new folks that aren't new. They're, they've been in the neighborhood the whole time. I'm curious to hear about some of your influences. I wanted you to first tell us the name of your book, your latest book you mentioned before. Sure. It's called Youth in the Digital Age, and the subtitle is Paradox, Promise, and Predicament. And it's really, it came out in 2019 out of Rutledge in the UK, and it's um, based on 185 narratives with young people from Scotland, Canada, and Australia, wherein we just, we tried to have a really long, deep conversation that was sustained about technology. And, you know, we started it out saying, um, okay, find yourself online, whether it's in your phone or on your computer, and they would open up their space. And then we would go from that object lesson to talk about how did you get there online? What does it mean for you to be there? Uh, how is that for your social world or your educational world? Or tell us more what you think about technology generally. And it was such a joy. And I'm swimming in these stories and films because we um, filmed our interviews. And we've not really been through all of this data yet. But this is the first book to come from it. And it's just a general cut of what we learned from these young people in terms of the deep, deep paradox that they're living in the digital age. So that was the most recent one. And I'm working on another one at the moment, which is just about the themes of resistance and how are young people resisting and in what ways are they re resisting and is it possible to resist? Because um, as I said earlier, some of what they were saying was that they don't see a way to resist or the resistance is so small as to be futile or when they resist, they won't even exist as people anymore. So some really troubling statements that I, I'd like to dig deeper into the data to find out um, more about. What I'm hearing when you when you speak about that is just a sense of powerlessness. Yeah, um, or the, the conundrum that these tools make me feel powerful because I have, you know, 5,020 friends, but they're not really my friends. Or, you know, I, I love to connect, but boy, when I connect, I really get, I feel badly about myself. So, you know, this on the one hand, on the other hand, this, this paradox, this conundrum for them um, that did end up not every minute of every day in powerlessness, but but kind of a, a concern, like a, a despondent concern that they wouldn't ever be able to think of a life without it. And what I found fascinating, these young people were between the ages of 16 and 20, and then we followed them along for five years, so they moved along the spectrum. But uh, they would say almost invariably that they were the most concerned about their little siblings and little kids. 
because the technology is more, is more complicated, is more ubiquitous, is mobile, it's in their phone. And so we would say to them, well, tell us what you're worried about. Well, they should have a childhood. They should be out running. They should be out in the park. They should be you know, doing outdoor things. They should be making face-to-face friends. They should be playing sports and such. And I'd say, well, how, how is that different than for you? And they would really stop and think about it and say, oh, yeah, well, we, we've got it. You know, we're fine. We're going to find ways to be able to, to balance. But it's these young kids, they're, they're really being eaten up and taken up. And it was quite a concern for them. It spoke volumes, really, to what's going on in the world of children and, and youth. I mean, even just what a what a deep sense of empathy for younger generations and even them when they're still, you know, in their own youth. Exactly. And these young people would have been at a time, not, of course, like me, but um, would have been at a time where it was more a choice. You know, mobile phones weren't always there. Um ubiquity wasn't quite as as um, full as it is now, but they could sure see it coming. They could see it coming in their own lives and they could certainly see it in the lives of these really small kids. There was something kind of effective, uh, reactive when they would see an um, eight-year-old, for example, with a phone on the street. They would find it really troubling. Like we don't want to see these little kids running around with cell phones. We certainly don't want to see babies with them. And I thought it was really fascinating. So I re- I should dig around in the stories and data more to learn about that, and or ask young people more going forward on um, those feelings and their those concerns. What are some books? Or you reference you getting back into poetry. What are some books or thinkers or programs like podcasts, etc., influencing your thinking right now about this whole topic? Oh my goodness! I just read so much and such weird things, you know, across. And it's also I'm I'm loving that I can circle back to poetry. So I have been enlightened by so many thinkers, so many different disciplines, so many colleagues that work across disciplines in the world of human development, but also in the world of politics and philosophy and, you know, larger questions of society and economics. And I I mean, one of the books that I'm still working through, which is just incredible, is um, Shoshana Zuboff's book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. It's quite a a large book, and she's really done some incredible heavy lifting to suggest that we're at a new economic time when big tech can take our human experience and sell it on the market. And it's fascinating. Um, She's a person from a, she's from business at Harvard. I believe she's an emeritus professor now, but she's drawing also on all of these um, cross-disciplinary places and spaces to try to make her arguments. So it's fantastic. But I would want to say on balance, I'm learning the most from the young people I talk with. They never, ever cease to amaze me. Uh, What worries me is they're not being given enough space and voice to talk. Lots of people are talking for them and about them, but not with them. And so I learn so much from them. And then I have to go away and try to read and, and figure out, you know, some decent analysis of what they're trying to say to me, because they really are the foot soldiers. They're at the front line of of what is going on uh, technologically, certainly. 
Um, and and I'm I can't wait to have conversations with them about this pandemic and what it meant to them, and what it should mean to us as a society as we kind of hit the reset button if we ever do. Um, they just never cease to amaze me. What would your encouragement be to students and parents at home right now going through this educational journey? You know, I haven't looked closely at the curriculum and what is on offer, but I can only say that I'm sure it's well considered, well conceived. There'll be some beautiful projects and lessons that are coming through on the uh, on the ether to enlighten the the thinking and the minds of of children and young people. So try to take seriously what's being offered, you know, as an educational space. Um, we need more educational spaces on the internet and try to engage with some of that learning as a family, you know, good old fashioned sitting around the table doing homework together and talking about homework really now is a time where we could do that. And uh, folks can engage in what kids and children and young people are being asked to do at school and, you know, turn it into a, a moment of family learning. What would you say to parents in, who are feeling maybe a bit overwhelmed? Like, what would you give them permission to do if this is a bit overwhelming for them? Yeah, and I can only imagine it being my children are now 28 and 25. So I do understand this is easier for me to say because we're all working and working from home and everything else about life. It's all just moved into this one little space. So yes, give yourself permission not to do that. Give yourself permission to have the conversations over your meals with your with your children about what it is they've been asked to learn and if there's any way to support. Um, it's uh, not to suggest that you're hanging over their shoulder um, micromanaging the learning, but that I'm, I'm hopeful that there are engagements, there are some sort of learning projects that are coming through that might be of interest to everybody to to speak about. Yeah, it seems like a way that this could be really life-giving is leaning into shared curiosities and interests and you know, and we have a bit more time for those things. So if you as a parent are interested in cooking and you have a kid who's curious and has the, you know, desire to be participating in that to to make opportunities for that. My husband's exceptionally good at these types of things. Like that's an opportunity for fractions. Let's double the recipe, these types of things, you know? And it does seem like if we can find a way to integrate the online learning, you know, that's being given to us, for example, here in, in Toronto, you know, the TDSB, you know, take those things, but not to necessarily be too stuck or rigid in, you know, trying to force outcomes, because it does seem like well-being really does need to top out our priorities right now. Yeah, it's so beautifully put, um, Christina, because learning really is everywhere around us. And it's a matter of understanding it. And when you are overwhelmed by it, or when you can't engage in it, just being able to say, I can't do that now. Um, But even that's learning, isn't it? Uh, We're learning about other people's wellness and what we can and can't do as human beings. And, you know, it's to be able to have spaces that are de-stressed enough where we can see that learning is all around us and that there are all kinds of opportunities for it, even given that we're in close quarters and uh, it's much more complicated today. Not to mention just the sheer anxiety of what's happening 
in the world around us as it's happening with unemployment and, um, you know, illness and precarious situation and no one knowing what's going to happen. I mean, these are real struggles and strains on both young people and, and parents and others. Are there any last thoughts you'd like to leave with our listeners today? No, but I'm just so grateful that you're making this space. Um, it, it, this is a much more difficult conversation to have post-pandemic, I would think. It's complexifying everything, but I've been really grateful um, that you've made this space. And, and I hope that I've been able to, um, you know, to say some things that are helpful to young people and parents um, at this moment in time. And it's a cliche now, but people really are all in it together. And um, I think it's a moment for reflection on that and understanding what that means. So thank you very much for uh, for speaking to me. Oh, thank you so much for being with us. I, I think it's going to be a great encouragement to parents all across Canada and the world. So thank you. Wonderful. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about our guests in the show notes and by visiting jomocast.com. The Jomocast is edited and music composed by Thomas J. Inge. Visit Tom online at tinge, that's T-I-N-D-G-E dot com to learn more about Tom and his services. The Jomocast is listener supported. Sign up as a patron at patreon.com forward slash Jomocast. Patreon support makes the podcast possible. For just $3 a month, you will keep these conversations going. That link again is patreon.com forward slash Jomocast. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast with your provider of choice. And if you loved this episode, leave us a five-star review. These reviews are a powerful way you can help us reach more listeners. I'm your host, Christina Crook. Thanks for listening. And may you find joy missing out on the right things.